Good morning. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 13, if you want to follow along. And may the Lord open the eyes of our hearts and illuminate them uh, to his word and his truth by his spirit. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I bought a waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a crevice of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. After many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it. And lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. Let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, for glory. But they did not listen. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. And when they say to you, do we not very well know that every jug is to be filled with wine? Then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion so as not to destroy them. Listen. And give heed. Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev have been locked up, and there is no one to open them. All Judah has been carried into exile, wholly carried into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those coming from the north, where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful sheep? What will you say when he anoints over you and when you yourself had taught them, former companions, to be head over you? Will not pangs take hold of you like a woman in childbirth? 
if you say in your heart, Why have these things happened to me? Because the magnitude of your iniquity, your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopards his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Therefore, I will scatter them like drifting straw to the desert wind. This is your lot. The portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. So I myself have also stripped your skirts off over your face, that your shame may be seen. As for your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills in the field, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will you remain unclean? Let's pray. Father, we, we hear uh, the account of your words to your people long ago. And the weight of them and the seriousness of them. And how you view rebellion against you and worshiping other things instead of worshiping you and giving you the glory you deserve. Father, we ask you that we would hear your words, that we would obey and do what you say. Pray for our brother this morning uh, as he explains to us further the context and, and, and what this means for us, uh, that you would open our hearts and that you would give us your grace to obey. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I've been moving through the book of Jeremiah at a pace of about maybe one or two chapters per week, and I'll let you know that I intend to pick up that pace some in the weeks to come. But this week, we're spending time on this one chapter, chapter 13, because in it, Jeremiah, he sets before us a principle that really impacts the entire book of Jeremiah, and I believe has a huge impact on our understanding of all of the prophetic books. I'm going to start this morning with a question. What, what do you do when something that belongs to you becomes damaged? Well, if you're, if you're anything like me, you do everything in your power to fix it. My, my garage has plenty of duct tape and WD-40 and super glue and, uh, and JB Weld. But, of course, the most useful of all tools in the 21st century is YouTube. <laughs> if, uh, if after trying valiantly I can't fix it, I go to my plan B, which is to call Bob or Patrick or Mihai or Leonard and to get them to help me fix it. They can fix anything. What does God do when something that belongs to Him becomes damaged? Does he rig it or patch it or mend it and put it back into service, not sure how long the fix is going to last? No, he does not. He makes it brand spanking new so that nothing about its broken condition remains. Sometimes that's a process. But the outcome is always that he remakes that which has been corrupted or ruined. 
In Jeremiah 13, uh, God presents five word pictures or metaphors for really good things that have become very badly damaged. And I'll, uh, I should mention at this point this, this excellent short commentary by, uh, Philip Ryken on Jeremiah. Uh, he's the one who really kind of got me thinking about these five things in this passage that were, were good and have, have been made bad. It's a great commentary. The first word picture that he presents is of a linen waistband. And the waistband represents the relationship between God's people and God Himself. As the chapter opens, God instructs Jeremiah to go and buy a linen waistband. We're talking about valuable fabric. And to wear it around his waist for a time. Jeremiah, of course, obeyed God's instructions. And the people in Judah and Jerusalem who were close to Jeremiah would certainly have observed that he was wearing this valuable waistband. Then God sent him on a walking trip about 300 miles to the north to the Euphrates River. And he told them to go there and to stuff that that valuable linen waistband into a crevice in a rock near the river where it would be exposed to all kinds of, of intense moisture and temperature changes and mold and mildew and bugs. And then after what is described as many days, Jeremiah was sent back to retrieve that waistband. And I'm pretty sure that by the time he got back to that waistband, it was about ready to stand up and walk around all by itself. Everyone who knew Jeremiah would have known that he left Jerusalem twice for a long time, possibly months, to make that 300-mile walk and to come back. The ruined waistband with which he returned the second time would have been a very vivid picture. It would draw the attention of anyone who saw it. And that word picture, that, that, that physical, tangible picture was to enhance and to highlight the words that God then told Jeremiah to speak to the people. And here are those words, starting in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, Let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. And then Jeremiah says something that points back to God's original intention for Israel and Judah. God says through him, For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. God spells out in that verse His purpose, His intent for creating Israel as a nation in the first place. 
And his declaration here harkens back to passages like Deuteronomy 26, verses 17 to 19, where God said to Israel, You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in His ways and keep His statutes and His commandments and His ordinances and you would listen to His voice. And the Lord has today declared you to be His people. A treasured possession as He promised you. And that you should keep all His commandments and that He should set you high above all the nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor. And that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as He has spoken. That's why God created a nation from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them His own treasured inheritance, to make them a people who would display His character and His ways to all the nations of the world, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But His people were stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious all their days. And now His forbearance toward them was ending. They would be judged and the judgment would be fierce. But friends, God's design, God's purposes, God's intentions are never undone by men. If they were, we would be sovereign instead of Him. And that's never going to happen. God says that He made Israel and Judah. He created them to cling to Him and to be a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. His glory. And that purpose has not changed. If you don't understand that, you will never understand this book or any of the other Old Testament prophets. God's purposes are not undone by men. The second picture of a good thing turned bad in this passage is jugs full of wine. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, an abundance of new wine and fine aged wine and vineyards full of good grapes to produce that wine, are metaphors for great blessing from the hand of God. They're metaphors for celebration of relationship and fellowship with God. This is one of the most consistent word pictures in the whole Bible. There is nothing random about the fact that Jesus' first recorded miracle in John 2 in Cana of Galilee was to was to transform at least 120 gallons of water into the finest wine that I expect the world has ever tasted. Over and over in the Old Testament, the great restoration passages like Isaiah 25 speak of God providing to His people an abundance of fine wine. And those passages are associated with the return of Messiah to claim His own. On the other hand, over and over in the Old Testament, the judgment passages like Isaiah 24, the one just before the the chapter 25 that I mentioned, the judgment passages speak over and over of withered grapevines and of the absence of wine. But in some of the most forceful judgment passages in the Old Testament, God employs another angle on the wine metaphor. Wine that blesses is turned to wine that curses. 
And that's what happens in this passage. In verse 13, God Himself says that He will fill all the inhabitants of the land, the kings that that sit for David on His throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. This isn't a passage arguing against the abuse of alcohol. There are plenty of those in the Bible, but this is a warning of a devastating kind of drunkenness that is imposed by God on His rebellious people. A drunkenness by which He will, quote, dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together. If you've seen people who get violent when they drink, this is talking about murderous violence. Wine that enhances celebration and merriment will become wine that creates enmity and violence even between a man and his son. See, this is about God turning wine that blesses into wine that curses because the hearts of His people who have received His covenant blessings for generation after generation beyond measure, those people have persisted in turning away from Him. In the third word picture, the hope, the anticipation of morning's light is turned into the certainty of extended darkness. Poets and songwriters in every age of mankind have spoken of the advent of a new morning as as a new opportunity for blessing. But for unrepentant Judah, the time was upon them when the light of each new morning would not bring a fresh start with new opportunities for blessing that a new dawn would be expected to bring, but instead would bring new judgments from the hands of God. The fourth word picture that God sets before Judah is in verses 17 to 20. It's really two images intertwined. A beautiful crown and a beautiful flock. In this fourth picture, God says, verse 18, Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. And then he says in verse 20, lift up your eyes and see those who are coming from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you? Your beautiful sheep. What will you say when God appoints over you former companions to be head over you? Will not pangs take hold of you like a woman in childbirth? The reference in verse 18 to the king and the queen mother is undoubtedly referring to Jeconiah, King Jeconiah and his mother Nehushta. Jeconiah, who's also known as Jehoiachin or Coniah, was the grandson of King Josiah. He reigned as king for a grand total of three months in Judah. 2 Kings chapter 24 records a first siege of Jerusalem that occurred about 10 years before the devastating siege of Jerusalem in, that ended in 587 B.C. With the, when the walls of the city came down. In that first siege around 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city and the siege ended on the day that King Jeconiah 
and the queen mother Nehushta, along with their captains, the captains of their army, and their royal officials came outside the walls of the city and met with Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps to try to strike a deal for peace. But what happened that day is that Nebuchadnezzar took them all away into captivity. And he took with them the treasures of the king's palace and of the Lord's house. He left only the poorest of Jerusalem's inhabitants in the land, and he appointed over them Zedekiah, Jeconiah's uncle, to be king of Judah in his place. The beautiful crown of the king ruling on King David's throne was cast to the ground. And the beautiful flock of God over whom that king was privileged to rule was removed from the land except for the poorest of the poor. Two things that God had designed for great good had become ruined. But God's original intention for those two things, for the crown of David and for the holy city, were not undone. His intention for His beautiful sheep was not undone. The fifth and final metaphor in the passage is found in verses 21 to 27. God had called Israel out from among all the peoples of the earth to be His bride. The Old Testament very often describes the relationship between God and His covenant people as that between a man and his betrothed bride-to-be. The young virgin that he would soon marry. But the indispensable requirement for a maiden to be marriageable in Israel was that she be pure. And the good thing that had now gone bad in the last part of this passage is the purity of God's people. The indictments that God had already presented in great detail leading up to this passage painted a picture of a wayward nation that God likened to a donkey in heat, welcoming every courtier from among all of the surrounding nations along with all of their man-made gods. God now declares that He Himself, He Himself will raise up the skirts of Judah, exposing her just as she has so continually exposed herself. Judah, the passage tells us, will cry out in the midst of God's fierce judgments. And she will say, why have these things happened to me? Even though God has been telling her in great detail why these judgments would happen. She will falsely defend her modesty and faithfulness to Yahweh. But God's answer to Judah's absurd claim of innocence and of purity will be to display the shamefulness of her infidelity to all the nations. So what turned these five good things bad? Well, in this passage... Repeatedly, and throughout the book of Jeremiah, repeatedly, God speaks of two sins that prop up all the other sins of Judah. The first is pride, 
And the second is the refusal to listen to His words. And it's really not two sins, it's one. Because the refusal to hear God stems from the pride that believes that one already knows what he needs to know. And so they walked in the stubbornness of their own hearts. They walked in their own counsel instead of the counsel of God. And they went after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. And so God said to them in verse 9, just like He destroyed that waistband, He will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this wicked people who refuse to listen to My words. In verse 11, He said that He created Israel and Judah to be His people, a people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they did not listen. In verse 15, he says, Jeremiah says to, his, to the people, listen. And give heed and do not be prideful. For Yahweh has spoken. In verse 17, Jeremiah says, If you will not listen, my soul will sob in secret for such pride. Jeremiah would, would sob over the prideful deafness of God's own people to the Word of God. Beloved, if we don't see relevance in this to us as the church of Jesus Christ, then we're wasting our time studying this book. But I can assure you with great confidence that studying the book of Jeremiah is an excellent thing for the church in the modern age to do and for the church in every age. One beloved brother asked me on Wednesday if Jeremiah is talking to unbelievers or believers to saved people or to unsaved people? That's a very important question. My answer is this. I am absolutely convinced that God wrote the entire Bible to His elect. Now, please hear me out. First, when I say elect, I'm not drawing a distinction between Calvinists and Arminians. Okay. Both of them recognize the word, the phrase God's elect as a legitimate biblical designation for those who are destined to dwell with God forever. Whether they have come to believe yet or will come to believe. God's elect are those whom He has known from before the foundations of the world as those who will dwell with Him forever. Those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life before He created anything, before anything existed except God Himself. The elect are those in every generation whom God will claim to Himself through faith in the Gospel promises that are fulfilled only by Jesus Christ. That includes promises made long before Jesus came from heaven to earth and fulfilled them. Throughout the Bible, God is talking to those people whether they have come to trust in Him or will come to trust in Him. Most of mankind in every generation will never come to trust in Him or to know Him. And the revelation of God that they have received, whether it be the revelation of God in creation or the revelation of God through His written Word, will serve only to seal their condemnation because they will reject that revelation to their dying breath. But it was not for the sake of those people that God sent His prophets and apostles. It was not for the sake of those people that God sent His own beloved Son to take on humanness and to walk among the wretched likes of us 
for 33 years and to go to a cross to die in our place and be raised from the dead. It was for the sake of all of those whom He willed before the foundation of the earth to give to His Son forever. The Bible from cover to cover is written to those people. I could spend hours defending that understanding from God's Word, and maybe that would be worth doing sometime in a separate series. But for now, I'll just ask you to test that understanding with God's Word. Just as you test every word that comes out of this this mouth or any other mouth. For us who are God's elect, beloved, for us who are God's elect, the very same truths about God and about us that drew us to faith in Jesus Christ still apply once we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. As we received Him, so we walk in Him. The sins that caused us to turn away from His ways and to cling to our own foolish ways when we were unbelievers are the same essential sins that cause us to turn away from His ways and to cling to our foolish ways now that we are believers. And if anyone here says to me, oh, but Christians don't do that kind of thing, my response is, yeah, right. God uses the same words that turned our hearts to Him in saving faith to turn our hearts to Him in sanctifying faith. It's not two different sets of truths One for before we get saved and one for after we get saved. It's the same truths. And if we get that, then the question, is God talking in this passage to unsaved people or to saved people, regardless of what passage we're looking at, will take a back seat to the question we should be asking, and that is, what is this passage saying to God's people? To God's elect. And in the passage at hand, I ask you this. Which of the failures of the church in the modern age do not trace back to prideful refusal to listen to the Word of God and to respond to it? Which of the failures of the church in the modern age would not be cured if we stopped listening to ourselves and instead humbly listened to the Word of God and acted in keeping with it. The cure to prideful deafness to God's Word is for us to humbly listen to Him and to respond with the same humility. But the all-important question is, what makes that happen? How does that happen? What turns us from pridefully turning our face away from what God has declared and replacing it with our own nonsense instead of humbly listening to what He says and living accordingly? In verses 22 and 23, God tells us just how spiritually dense the Judahites were. When the judgment that he's foretelling here started to come upon them, what was their response? Did they turn back to God with humble hearts and listen carefully to to what he had been saying to them? No. They said, why have these things happened to me? Again, even though God had already been answering that question at great length through Jeremiah. 
So God asked them a piercing question that goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. God is saying to Judah, what's going to fix your blindness to your own rebellion against me? What is going to turn you from generations of prideful deafness so that you humbly hear and heed my words. And then he says to them, we'll know this first of all. It won't be you. It won't be you that causes that change. You're not going to change your own spots any more than a man can change the color of his own skin. The most essential theme of this book of Jeremiah and of all of the Old Testament prophets is how God turns the hearts of people that He has called to Himself when their hearts are not devoted to Him. When they do not love Him in a way that reflects all the incredible, amazing grace that He has lavished upon them. How does God make such a people listen to Him and love Him and trust Him, and obey Him? And the one and only answer in both Testaments is grace. God has to make us listen to Him, and love Him, and trust Him, and obey Him. In Ezekiel 36, He says, Here's how I'll vindicate My name among all the nations in which you have profaned My name, Israel and Judah. Here's how I'll vindicate my name. I will sprinkle your hearts clean and I will wash you with clean water and I will take your hearts of stone and turn them to hearts of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. That's grace. That's what changes us. God has to make us listen to Him and love Him and trust Him and obey Him. He's the only one who can do it. And beloved, He does it by tearing down before He builds up. In both testaments of God's Word, grace breaks us in order to make us new. That's true not only of the grace that justifies us, but it is also true of the grace that sanctifies us, that makes us holy in practice as we are in position. God graciously breaks breaks us of all dependence on ourselves and He drives us to utter and absolute dependence on Him alone. The fix for our sin is never a cooperative effort. It's all God. There's a marvelous quote by Derek Kidner in his very concise commentary on Jeremiah about how we, people, try to salvage ruined things. Listen to this. He says, it is generally we, not God, who struggle to preserve what we've ruined. But it is God who smites to heal. Or as he put it to Jeremiah at the outset of this book in chapter 1, verse 10, who calls for demolition in order to build and to plant. Isn't that great? Do you want God to help you become more righteous than you are? That's not going to happen. God is not at work to nurture the good in us. He is at work to crucify the bad and replace it with Christ. 
That's already been accomplished positionally in every believer. He killed the old man and he created a new man in holiness and righteousness of the truth. The truth whose name is Jesus. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. And now, he says, put on the new man that you put on. He's at work to accomplish the same thing in practice. He's killing off every residue of our old sin nature so that Christ is all that remains. Beloved, God does not fix what our sin ruins. He kills it and makes it new. The very rare good kings of Israel and Judah took steps to eliminate the idolatrous practices of the people, but they always seemed to leave in place some of the trappings of that idolatrous worship. And the favorite ones that they almost to a man left in place were called the high places. The altars that the people had supposedly created so they wouldn't have to travel such a distance to come to a place where they could worship Yahweh. They didn't, didn't want to have to go all the way to Jerusalem and worship where he had put his name and declared that he dwelled in their midst. They had other reasons for those high places, though. When God finally gave Judah a good king, King Josiah, who actually went the whole distance to get rid of the syncretistic worship of Judah and to restore the central worship of Yahweh at the temple where he dwelled in their midst, what was the people's response? They didn't like it. In fact, because Jeremiah endorsed the destruction of the high places, his own city of Anathoth, the priestly community of Anathoth, wanted to kill him. It was too inconvenient. It didn't allow them to worship Yahweh where they wanted and how they wanted. And it made it a lot harder for them to sneak in their backup gods that they thought they needed just in case Yahweh didn't pan out. See, it's God, not we, who plucks up and breaks down and destroys and overthrows in order to build and to plant. He doesn't fix broken and ruined things. He makes all things new. And we don't like it when He does that because it hurts. But it's gracious. It's the only way for Him to truly restore what our sin has corrupted. Why is there so much judgment in this book of Jeremiah? So much that if we actually worked our way verse by verse through all of those judgment passages, some of us would grow so weary that we'd just stop showing up. The reason the book is weighted as it is is essentially this, I believe. In order to restore his wayward people to relationship and fellowship with him, God must first humble them. And in order to humble them, he must first humiliate them. Because... We don't learn easily. He must break them. He must cast down every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we don't like it when He does that because it hurts. But it's gracious. It's how God redeems. It's how God takes people who are too prideful, too full of themselves to really listen to Him And He humbles us so that we actually do listen to Him. He doesn't fix our pride, brothers and sisters. He kills it. 
And it hurts when he does that. We cannot make good what our sin has turned bad. God has to do it. And he does so by destroying what we have ruined and replacing it with that which comes only from his hand. 1 Peter 4.17 says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's not something that we should evade because it is gracious and necessary. Hebrews 12 says that the painful, sorrowful, fatherly discipline that every true child of God receives from his hand, that he calls scourging, is exactly how we come to share his holiness and to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you want those things? Do you want to share God's holiness? Do you want to know to the core of your being the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Then you have to be scourged by a perfect, loving, heavenly Father. If you're wondering how is this practical, my question is how is it not? changes our whole grid for interpreting what God is doing in our lives. It changes our grid for interpreting the painful and hurtful things that we experience. And we realize that God knows exactly what He's doing every day of our lives. And that it is His His perfect and holy and gracious and good purpose to break us of the things that our sin has ruined in order that only Christ may remain. And that's good. It's wonderful. It's blessed. When all of God's judgment of sin and sinners is done, we will see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, adorned as a bride made ready for her husband. And we'll hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell among us and we will be His people and He will live right in our midst. And He will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Those first things will have passed away forever. And He who sits on the throne will declare, Behold, I have made all things. Loving Father, thank You for Your gracious work of demolition that leaves only Christ. We praise Your name in the name of our precious Savior and Master Jesus Christ. Amen.